This is the show with Cannon Brown. The next words I'm going to say will sound skeptical, but I'll be totally truthful about it. I think we are so early right now into what we know about genomics. I think that we have a good starting place. I think we need to continue to do research and continue to work. But I think the things that we know right now about genomics are only a fraction of what we're going to know, hopefully within my lifetime, but if not beyond that. And I think the day will come where genomic predictors will be highly, highly accurate. That last few minutes might have been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you? Well, hello there, my loyal listeners. This is the show, and as always, I'm your host, Cannon Brown. I don't even know if I can call you guys loyal listeners. There's only a few of you right now, and I only have five episodes, uh, four posted. This is fifth including, so... uh, well, if I get more episodes and, and uh, the downloads uh, keep coming in as, as I see them, then maybe I can call you some loyal listeners. But right now, you're just renting me out. Um, but that's all right. I'll take it. I am perfectly fine with that. You guys keep listening and keep trying to figure out if you like me or not. That usually is the way that it goes. Good morning. It's a beautiful Thursday, uh, August 8th, and uh, I've got a great great interview for you guys but first I wanted to take some time and give a shout out to uh, the stock talk guys Uh, they just recently released an episode last week uh, talking to Ferris Simon Uh, and Ferris is the host of uh, the other podcast in this uh, industry called shoot side and uh, they gave me a shout out on the podcast and I thought that was incredibly awesome and it just felt really good to to kind of be um in the loop with those guys because uh, Stock Talk was the first one to do it, and um, after them, we're kind of all followers. So uh, hats off to them, and I really appreciate them uh, taking time and and mentioning my uh, little podcast uh, in their episode. So thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. We have an incredible interview uh, today. Uh, Mr. Jake Scott is on the podcast at Krebs Ranch. He is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to purebred uh, cattle, uh, especially Angus and Hereford. But just in terms of life, he's he's got a few tidbits that'll that'll put you on your butt and, and make you listen. And certainly during his interview, I had to just kind of wrap my mind around uh, what he was saying and, and just take some time to reflect on it before I could talk anymore because he just is spitting out so much that. Uh, you just, I mean, I had to take notes during it because he, he's talking a lot and, and he's talking about every aspect of the industry. And I think that's awesome. But uh, I hope you guys like it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Please subscribe on uh, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you're listening to this. Hit that little subscribe button. Hit a rating on it. No one's going to know. It's anonymous, whatever. Be a little scandalous sometimes. All right. I won't hurt you. Um, follow me on Instagram, the show pod, uh, follow me and like my page on Facebook, the show with Cannon Brown. I've been trying to uh, get some more exposure guys. So if I have been, uh, uh, following you guys on Instagram, I've been kind of mass following people, uh, that I see that are in the industry. Welcome. Thanks, uh, for, uh, 
just taking my follow and, and, and looking me up. So I really appreciate that. And, and the more that you guys can share this with your friends and, and the people that you think will enjoy this, the more that I can be in the ears of, of other people and then annoy them. So as always, I talk too much, guys. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. But we'll, we'll get to the episode pretty soon. Actually, right now. All right, let's do it, Mr. Jake Scott. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Doing good. Doing good. Can you hear me all right? Loud and clear. It sounds really good, in fact. Perfect. Uh, well, I'm using my good mic, so. <laughs> and I actually. You live and you learn. Well, I sound a lot better now because, um, like I told you last time, it was just picking me up on the laptop. So, yeah, I must have sounded pretty bad. Uh, no problems. Yeah. Well, how are you? Good. Good. We're having a good summer. It's uh, It's been an interesting summer. We've had a lot of moisture. Uh, you know, our winter was pretty dramatic. Our spring had a lot of, of weather in it. And then we've continued to be wet through the summer. But there's more grass around here than you can shake a stick at. And cattle look really, really good. Hay's a little hard to get to because of the, of the amount of moisture we've had. But um, there's a lot of it to bail and we'll be in good shape. Well, yeah, I was actually going to ask you how is uh, that kind of recuperating uh, in your in your area? You guys got hit pretty hard this winter with that with those storms, <coughs> but it sounds like it's been actually pretty good for the environment. I mean, everything's growing pretty good. Yeah, no doubt about that. It's it's as good. My wife and I have lived here for twelve years now in Gordon, and in those twelve years, this is as pretty as we've ever seen it. And typically, this time of the year, as we get into July and August. Um, you know, the grass is going to start to get a little more dormant, get a little brown. It just naturally is going to start drying up a little bit. And gosh, it's still green, lush. Things are growing, look good. About to wear a lawnmower out this year. Nice. <laughs> That's always fun. You got to have a riding lawnmower for that, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, did you go to the um, uh, the Angus show in Louisville this year? We did. We drove out uh, to the National Junior Angus show in Louisville for uh, the Bread and Own show, and we didn't get to stay for the Own show. I judged the North Dakota State Fair, and I had to leave early to make it uh, up there in time. But, boy, the time we were there for the Bread and Own cattle, it was really, really good. Um, I worked with Cody Sankey on the Walton webcast, and that is just a blast. Nice. So people that can tune in, you know, if you can't be there, and you can watch it online, and we did some commentary for that. And what's cool about that is, is not only the, you know, the, the conversations and the discussions we have, but you literally sit there almost making yourself, you have to sit there and you watch every class and every animal, you read off every name of every kid. And it's, it's a great exercise to really focus on every pedigree, every kid, every animal. And it's as much of a learning experience for me as it is a, a service or whatever for the people that are listening. So I selfishly get a lot out of it, too. And then hopefully the people who are listening enjoy it as well. Well, it's such a unique perspective that not a lot of people have had. And uh, I, I mean, I've I've kind of sat in on those, not the Walton webcasting, but Arizona Nationals, my home state, uh, that, that show there. We kind of do it with the hog show, our own little thing on Facebook Live. And I've sat in on that. And you're absolutely right. It's just awesome being there and you get to see every class, what the judge is picking, kind of kind of what he or she has tendencies to pick. And uh, it's a very unique perspective that not a lot of people get to get to see. So, yeah, I definitely think that's a fantastic time. 
It is. We enjoyed it and enjoyed our time in Louisville. Um, got to see a lot of friends and catch up with some people, see a lot of cattle, uh, obviously, and learn some things. And, and that's interesting, too, from a personal standpoint this year because we have two daughters. Um, one is five and one is eight. And our eight-year-old will be old enough to start showing Angus cattle this next year. And so from oh, a boy. mom and mom and dad standpoint, Cammie and I were maybe looking at things a little closer than we have uh, in some years because this is just right around the corner for us too. Yeah, and but they put on such great shows that you don't even you don't even have to worry about the shows being kind of uh, badly run. Those Angus people, they put on such good shows and I bet they cater so well to the to the young exhibitors that are just getting started as well. So you've got nothing to worry about there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No, they do a very nice job. I agree. Well, let's talk about you. Okay. So we talked about a little shows and stuff like that, but let's talk about you kind of coming up in this industry. And I remember the last time we talked and I know this is, we, we've only met one time, but I feel like every time I talk to you, I'm talking to an old friend, which is, (laughs) it's just funny to me, but uh, haven't talked that much, but I remember last time, uh, you told me that you were kind of a first generation ag kid. And if you were going to be something, you were going to be a horse kid. And I thought that was really interesting. So kind of, kind of walk me through what that process was like, what your childhood was was like, uh, kind of getting into showing. Yeah. So my background, it is kind of interesting how I've ended up in the cattle business, um, my dad, my brother, uh, both enjoyed horses. Both were good with horses. They team roped, uh, later got into cutting horses. My brother trained horses for a living for 25 years. And everything around my place growing up tended to revolve around a horse. And as I, uh, and, and I enjoyed horses too, not to the extent that my, my parents and sibling did. But as I uh, got ready to go into high school, uh, I lived on the very edge of two school districts, and um, I was told I was going to have to to leave my school I'd always been in and and go across town to the arch rival, you know, and join this other school to make the districts right. So I joined uh, a school called Muldrow in Oklahoma, and it just so happened they had a fantastic FFA program, and it was heavily involved with show cattle. And so that seemed to be the group of guys that I kind of hung out with and, and fell in with and got along with more of the ag kids. And so, you know, you join FFA and then you get your, your, uh, yourself exposed to some of these new things. And, and like I said, this chapter was very involved with showing cattle. And, uh, my dad was very supportive of, of my interest in that. And we bought a cow calf pair was my very first animal. And uh, had a little heifer calf at side, and we halter broke her, and, and she wasn't much. She was always kind of a third or fourth place heifer, but it was not so much the placing for me. It was it was the work and the travel and the camaraderie and, and the learning experience. I just had a blast with it. And so the year following that, we bought a show steer. And that show steer, uh, again, I think I paid either 600 or $800 for him. But uh, we put a lot of work into him, and he ended up being the reserve grand champion steer at our county fair. And that really boosted my confidence and encouraged me and and um, excited me and got me pumped up to really want to dive into that. And so I um, I got really into the clipping and fitting thing in high school. Everybody that would let me help, I, I would 
I would jump in and just try and learn as much as I can. I went to some summer camps that are geared for um, show cattle kids. In fact, it's called Be a Champ Cattle Camp in Oklahoma. I went to that for three years in high school with some other friends. And um, so uh, that, after high school, led into uh, livestock judging. And well, after let's college, back up, let's back up here. So yeah, I'm yeah. going to slow you down here one sec. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's kind of funny that you mentioned your your first uh, your first heifer that you had. She wasn't anything special, and then, uh, but that's what kind of got you into it. It's it it doesn't have to be anything special for your first year. It just has to be something that kind of gets you motivated and gets you hard working. And then your second year, you kind of win some or years coming up, you win some stuff, and that's when you get heavily involved. And I think a lot of people have that kind of experience where maybe their first couple of years, they're just doing it just to kind of get their reins on it and, and figure out what this deal is. And then once they start winning is when they start to spend some money on uh, better livestock, better equipment. And it's pretty interesting how that relationship goes. Yeah, you're right about that. And that's a good way to describe it. And, and that growth curve, that trajectory, I don't think that's a bad plan. It was a good one for me, but, um, as I think about now, my kids wanting to get involved, you know, I want to make sure it's truly what they want to do because I could see it being the same situation with us. You know, my wife was heavily involved with showing cattle. I enjoy showing cattle and we assume that our kids will, and we hope they will, but if they want to go off and, and uh, play a sport or do something else, you know, we'll be supportive like my parents were supportive of me, but that's, that's exactly right. The way you described it, we kind of dipped our toes in the water and, you know, once I got some confidence and got more interested in it, my parents uh, were more supportive and, and we never got crazy with it. Um, you know, we, we never had a what most people would consider a high dollar animal. In fact, in my whole high school career, the best I ever done was uh, a reserve division main Andrew heifer at the OIE show in Oklahoma City. That was the highlight of my show career as far as placings went, but I'll never forget it. Jim Williams yeah. was the judge. Um, the heifer that I had, there was no chance that she was going to win that division looking back now, but I had worked so hard on that heifer and we had her really looking as good as she could look that day. And I showed her as hard as I could that day. And on the microphone, I can remember his comment. He said, uh, look, I've no, and he kept us out there for a while. Uh, me and the, the, the other cattle and he, he selected the two of us. And anyway, he said, I've known for a while that I was going to use this young lady's heifer for champion and, and my heifer for reserve. But he said, I just enjoyed watching these kids compete so much that I wanted to just let them keep it going that's and stay awesome. out here for a little while. Yeah. You know what? And that was, that's a, that was a big memory for me. And it's funny that it stuck with me this long. And yeah, that was a highlight of my career. And um, it was, it was fun. Well, that just goes to show that you don't need to get first place in everything to, to have an incredible experience. I mean, and it is OIE. So there is that with it. I mean, the largest youth, uh, livestock show in the country, if you do anything at OIE, it's pretty, pretty impressive, but it, that just goes to show if, even if you don't get the banner, you don't get grand champion, you're still going to get something out of it. You're right about that, and and I agree, and I think there's something to be said for being hungry and staying hungry. That's really good for, for any of us, but a young kid especially, uh, 
keeping up the hustle and keeping up the grind because uh, it's I kind of think about it like this. And sometimes judging shows, I'll use this example. You can ask somebody, hey, what's your favorite football team? And eight out of 10 people will list a college team, not a pro team. And I think the reason people are maybe more drawn to college football than pro football, the pros are good, you know, and I think there's some boredom that sets in when they get that good at that level. But those college guys, man, those are the hustlers. They're working for those, it. They're working for it. They, uh, they've got a goal still in mind. They've got to outdo the, the two guys that are on the bench waiting to take their place. I mean, they're, they're going at it hard. And sometimes I think that's true when we see kids showing livestock too. Sometimes success can be your own worst enemy. Um, there could be some complacency or some boredom that sets in with it when you've done everything that you can do, I guess what's left to do. But when you're always just knocking at the door, it really does keep you humble and it keeps you hungry and it keeps you driving. And that's kind of a place I don't mind being. I think you're absolutely right. And I never really thought about it that way, honestly, but it makes complete sense. I mean, when you're kind of sitting there at second and third at a bunch of shows or whatever sports you're playing, you're always, you're always looking to, to be better and you're always working harder. But if you're always winning, you kind of, you think you're going to keep winning. That's, that's a pretty interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I wanted to get into judging cause you kind of, uh, started to get into it and I had to slow you down, but through high school, you were kind of self-taught livestock judging. Is that, that's right. Right. You told me that last time that you were kind of self-taught until you went to college. Yeah. So I didn't do any livestock judging in high school. Like I said, uh, our chapter's focus was on showing cattle, not, not judging so much. Um, and, uh, so when I, finished with high school and and we wanted to continue to do things like we had we'd been doing my friends and I and, and one good friend in particular Blake Nelson who's now the uh, the CEO of the American Maine on Jew Association he and I went to the same high school and he and I both uh, had talked about livestock judging and and that we wanted to do it and so we kind of took some trips and toured some different schools and we ended up um at Connor State College, which, as it happened to be, was the same college that had hosted the cattle camps he and I both went to when we were younger in high school. And so we had a little bit of a relationship already started with uh, Jerry McPeak, who not only ran that camp, but was also the livestock judging team coach for Connors. And uh, we were green. We were raw. Um, <laughs> in in every sense of the word both Blake and I you know our judging experience really consisted of um, picking out cattle every year for our projects to show and beyond that had had no formal training but I bet and you went so, in I bet you went in pretty confident to say that we went in pretty confident it would probably be more accurate to say we went in pretty scared um, but, but I think fear can be a real good motivator. Exactly. Fear of failure, maybe more specifically can be a real good motivator. And we wanted to be successful. He and I, Blake and I both did, and we were both competitive. Blake had played football and sports and I'd shown a lot. And, and so we had a competitive streak in us and, and we wanted to compete and be good at this livestock judging thing. And we're just lucky enough that that school and Jerry, was willing to stick their neck out a little bit 
on kids like uh, myself and Blake, who didn't have a world of experience, but maybe had a little bit of savvy and, and some want to. And really, that's what made up our whole team were kids like us. And it was fun. We, we kind of had that college hunger we talked about in the football example. Yeah, that's awesome. And I've got a couple friends that went to Connors, and, and I keep hearing all this stuff about Big Hill. What 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 <laughs> yeah. is Big Hill? What is it? So the the campus sits at the foothill of a of a little mountain range, I guess you would call it. It's west of the campus. And uh if you drive on past the campus west, uh paved roads turn to dirt roads and dirt roads wind up the hills and, and kind of circle back around into campus. So uh when you need to go uh blow off some steam and drive around a, an old country dirt road. That's the place all the kids go and do it. So. That's the place to drink a couple beers or something. Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> maybe so. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe drink a couple beers in junior college. Maybe not. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but don't, uh, we don't want to be a bad example here. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was just, <laughs> I've heard all my friends uh, talk about Connors and uh, they all loved it. And I went to a camp there um when i was in high school but i they never took me oh, really? up there so um yeah i was like a junior in high school when i went to a camp there but no so when you were at connor's uh, what do you think of livestock judging since you didn't have a lot of experience um kind of how, how did you learn and and how what was that process like for you i think it was the perfect choice as it turned out um for me to make because the particular style that Connors used in coaching and teaching was um, a high volume of classes, lots and lots of, of repetition on reasons, um, extremely high work ethic, extremely high standard of conduct, and, and just personal presentation. Um, they were used to kids who maybe didn't have a lot of experience coming out of high school and I think they had a good system and process in place to uh, give kids like me a chance to excel and get as good as they could be or as good as they wanted to be and so you know we would travel like any of the other teams but man we started early and we would go late and you know you get home and it's dark and it's eight thirty, nine o'clock and then we'd start on reasons and reasons might go to midnight or two in the morning and um, it was intense, but it was fun. You know, when you're involved with something where everyone has total buy-in and everyone's running the same direction, that team spirit and that belief that everyone is in this thing together, that's something really, really special. And we had that at Connors, And probably more so than any other thing I've ever been involved with with a group of people that's the strongest team um, I've ever been involved with. And it started with our leadership, Jeremy Peake and Ron Ramming, who's now the president of that college. He was our assistant judging team coach at the wow. time. But um, it's just really neat, and I, I admire it now as I've become an adult and, and in my own career, how those guys were able to get such buy-in and the culture there um, – you know, we'd take a bullet for each other. Those guys for us, us for them. And it was just really cool to have been a part of that. There again, much like the, the showing thing we talked about in high school, it's not like we went out and won every contest either. Um, we didn't have a lot to beat our chest about. We had some success. 
Uh, a lot of kids had some real bright spots throughout the year. We won some contests, but we lost some contests too. But it it really isn't in hindsight so much about what we won or lost. It was the experience. And to your point, to answer your question more exactly, um, that process really suited kids like us, their, their teaching methods. And it gave us a great foundation that we were able to continue to build on long after Connors. Uh, God bless junior college. I mean, I think that that atmosphere, any junior college you go to, whether it be livestock judging or other sports or something like that, that environment is just great for fostering relationships because it's such a close knit group and you're in a close knit area being at a two-year school, it's just you don't have anyone else but the people that you hang out with. It's just an incredible time. That's exactly right, and that's my experience uh, at that school. You know, everything from the dorm life, the social life, the school life, you're together. It's very family-oriented with the, the kids that you're on the livestock judging team with and just the ag kids in general. You know, you're generally grouped up in the same classes. <clears throat> we all lived in the in the same wing of the dorm, we all went out and ate pizza together and had fun together. And you just really didn't get that homesick feeling. Like I think you can get at a bigger school. You didn't feel lost in a crowd, lost in the shuffle, you might say. And, and for me, my personality and my personality style is better suited to uh, what I would describe as incremental growth. And so for me, taking a leap from high school to a huge four-year university would have been a tough stretch and a tough leap for me to make. But being able to make a small step from high school to junior college, becoming a little more comfortable with that independence and the changes that I needed to make as a student and learning new things um, in extracurricular things like judging and, and managing your time, you know, there again, that gave me a, a foundation that then I could go on to finish my degree at a four-year school, and I was much, much better prepared for it than if I had gone directly from high school. Yeah, I think it just it prepares you for so much uh, leading in, into a four-year. And and uh, you ended up going to Oklahoma State University, which is uh, kind of a natural flow for Connor's kids to go to uh, Oklahoma State uh, just because, I mean, you're in the same state, and, and there's a rich history uh, between those two schools kind of working together. Um, how was that transition going from a two-year to a four-year school? It was interesting. It was um, initially it was a difficult transition for me in terms of livestock judging. Now I loved Stillwater. Stillwater very much is a unique town because it still has kind of a Mayberry hometown feeling to it, especially if you come from an ag background because there's such a heavy emphasis on agriculture at Oklahoma State. So much of the campus is devoted to it and so you don't feel out of place like you may at, at uh, an ag kid may at a, at a different college. Oklahoma State, it's real easy for ag students to fit in. And that was the experience for me and the friends of mine who had went there. In terms of livestock judging, I judged for uh, Mark Johnson. And if Mark was here with me, uh, he would tell you the same thing. It was a rough transition for me because the style of coaching – and um, just the style of our workouts was so different 
than what we did at Connors. And keep in mind, Connors is my only experience in, in my life as to what livestock judging should be. And so when I saw a almost 180 degree different style of doing that, initially I had decided that I didn't want to do it. I had opportunities. I worked at the Oklahoma State Beef Barn with their Angus cattle, uh, had opportunities to travel to shows with people who needed help with uh, show cattle. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to work. I'm going to go to school. And that's that's going to be, you know, my judging thing. Well, that was good at Connors, but I don't think that's for me here. And the big difference was instead of being together all the time, like we were at Connors, and instead of those long, long days of judging, followed by long, long nights of talking reasons, Oklahoma State and Mark Johnson had a totally different style in that Mark wanted to work out on a handful of classes, but they were so structured and so thought out and so well designed and so intentional that he had a lesson in mind that you were going to learn from those two or three classes. And then we may only give one or two sets of reasons from those three or four classes that we judged, but we may give those same sets of reasons three or four times until we perfected them. And it took me a while to just adapt to that and from a maybe a psychological standpoint, understand the concept behind Mark's methodologies. And once I did, there again, I got buy-in to the program and um, Mark encouraged me to stick it out, and I'm, I'm thankful that he did, and I'm, I'm thankful that I did stick it out, and we ended up having a lot of success um, um, those years at Oklahoma State, um, got to have some, some top five and top ten finishes at different contests, had the opportunity to talk a 50 on a set of steer reasons at Kansas City, and, and just made some awesome friends awesome memories, and to use a term that you described earlier, create a real network of people um, that I'm still in contact with today and, and has really benefited me professionally after college is over. Well, what was your uh, kind of your kind of specialty? Was it cattle? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. <laughs> I, could, I, I could screw up a, a hog class and a sheep class better than anyone on my team. Yeah, but you could but pick I was up those points in the cattle room. every contest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could, I could. Yeah, that was my that was my crutch, man. I'm just if I can get this within a pair or two pairs on the hogs and sheep, I think I can really talk well in the room. And so if I had a good day, that's what happened. But on those days, I busted one of the sheep or hog classes, then I was probably out of the hunt. I love that, and <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> I can just imagine you walking up to like a, a sheep or hog class and being like. Well, I think they're doing this, but I mean, if I take four points on this, I think I can make it up on that heifer class. That's you're actually playing the game. All those things go through your head. Oh yeah. Well, that's I had the exact opposite. My my uh, specialty was hogs, and I was pretty good at okay. sheep and okay. cattle. Cattle were uh, cattle were the ones that I had the hardest time with. Yeah. I don't know why. I just could I could never wrap my mind around, especially like little heifers would kill me i could oh, really i couldn't do it it was yeah. hard but that's yeah, <laughs> yeah that's no a... i can totally relate though and totally identify and and that's part of the fun you know the exposure to things that are out of your comfort zone and I, i'm never going to be in the sheep business i'm never going to be in the hog business but being exposed to 
those species and the people in it and the things they do, it makes you better in, in, in your cattle business or in your case, in your hog or lamb businesses, you know, it makes you better being exposed to those things. And now I know this goat thing has exploded. And in my day, we didn't judge goats. We had horses at a couple of contests, which I think now have been replaced by goats, but my gosh, that's huge. And I think that would have been fun to get to uh, have the chance to, to learn about those and to judge those because that's become a huge part of showing livestock. Oh, goats are huge. And actually they are pretty fun to judge. They're just like, I bet they are. They're little creatures, but they're so awesome. Like they're just so different. Um, yeah, I see the pictures of them in magazines and, you know, you try and judge the pictures and they're, they're, they're pretty amazing the way they're breeding and showing those things. They are fun to look at. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I had a guy on, um, Alan Poe, and I don't know if you know who that is, uh, but he's from Oklahoma and he, he does a, uh, a lot of, uh, show weathers down there. And he was just explaining to me about the goat industry and, and kind of what it's been doing in the past couple of years. And it is blowing up. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I wish I had the number on off top of my head here of how many of those were shown in Oklahoma City at OYE, but it's staggering. Oh, it's crazy, especially down south. Those goats are going nuts. Yeah. But so you go to OSU, get your animal science degree. We kind of brushed over your education. Do you want to talk about that? How, how was your education process at OSU? Let's stick with the livestock. Yeah, journey. yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about that. You know what? I'm the same way. I don't want to talk about my education either. <laughs> uh, I'm joking. I, you know, it, it was good. The uh, animal science part, I really enjoyed. I got a production uh, major with a minor in business, um, and I, I like that degree. I, I wish in hindsight maybe I would have taken even more business and econ classes. Those I don't think you can ever have too much of or learn too much about. Um, Oklahoma State, from an educational standpoint, offers a lot. They have a fantastic meats program and a meats lab that uh, is pretty state-of-the-art. Um, the teachers, the faculty there were good. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I don't, I don't have any regrets about that. And you know, learned a lot. You always have your favorite classes. Um, the principal classes weren't as fun to me as the applied classes. And like always. Um, one, yeah. Once you got into stuff that felt a little more applicable to where you saw yourself in the future, that's where I really got, I was probably the most enthusiastic about school in the very last year of my education and, and that's where it just got really fun and you could start to see some reality setting in like hey this is something that one day I can actually implement and actually use and it's not so theoretical and that was the fun part of the education for me yeah when you get into like the specialized classes it definitely uh, puts your mind actually in the scenario and in the scene that you're going to be working with hopefully for the rest of your life yeah it's pretty incredible yeah it's, it's much easier to engage and and it makes it fun I think they need to pay all OSU alumni for recruiting, recruiting, because <laughs> it doesn't matter who you talk to that goes to Oklahoma State University. They are going to give you uh, a great review, and it, it's well deserved. That is a great institution. I understand what you're saying, and and it is, it's a special place. It's a special town, and I think the alumni are unique in their loyalty and. Uh, their passion about that school and about their times there. But I've become a student of culture um, since um, I've gotten out of school. I enjoy 
listening to podcasts and reading about culture and ways to improve and develop culture. And that's a great example of a fantastic culture is Stillwater in Oklahoma State. And it is something pretty cool to have gone through there. And I'm, I'm lucky to do that and to have done it. And it's not to say that there aren't other, other schools and there's not other alumni that are just as passionate, but Okie State's pretty special to a lot of us. It is pretty special. Do you have any uh, key insights into culture that we need to know about? I like talking about culture too, because I think so it's very I interesting. A, I heard a definition the other day and I wrote it on a sticky note and I put it on my computer screen. Culture is what you do and what you allow others to do. Wow. So that's pretty simple, but it's pretty profound. If you dive into that, it's the way that you act and you behave as a leader, for example, in your organization or your business. And so much as you are a leader of other people, it's what you allow them to do or what you don't allow them to do. And I thought that was a great, simple definition of culture. And um, I sure don't pretend to have that perfected in our operation, but it's something that um, I'm pretty fired up about and that I think is an important part of having the next generation of employees through our business be happy and stay here for a while. It's having a good, healthy, strong culture that people want to work in and be a part of. It's uh, a lot of people don't really look at it like that too. I mean, culture is so important within organizations and, and businesses. And I can see that it's probably at the forefront of your kind of insight being uh, kind of in charge of marketing and, and promotion of uh, Krebs Ranch. I mean, you got to be in tune with the culture around you and know what people are doing, know what people like and dislike and, and try to keep people happy. I, I bet that weighs on you quite a bit. It, it does. And in a good way, I enjoy uh, trying to learn more about it and understand it and know how we can implement it with our customers. And, you know, I, we, you and I kind of talk about culture almost in an employee employer sense of the word, but there's very much a lot of culture involved between us and our customers as well. And we want to have a very healthy, positive culture and good experience for our customers um, who buy bulls and who buy genetics from us. And that's something that we also work hard at. And it's interesting. I heard an, uh, an interview uh, that discussed a survey with millennials. And I think millennials are the largest available population in our workforce right now. So they get a, a terrible rap and they're called snowflakes and they're considered to be all these things. But the fact is that's the largest pool of in, potential employees and, and team members that we have to choose from right now. And when surveyed, the millennial generation considers culture more important than money. So they would rather work at a place where they're appreciated, valued, where they have buy-in, they believe in the mission, as opposed to a place that would not have those things, but give them a bigger paycheck. And that I'm fired up about that. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think that's great. And it, it throws me back to our discussion about the cultures on the, some of those livestock judging teams that we had. Because we were the exact same way. It didn't mean anything to us to be at a big prestigious school with a, a big name or something. We loved being at Connors and we loved being a part of that team and we loved having good leadership and we loved that culture. And I, I can relate to that, what what a lot of our millennial generation is describing when I hear those results in those surveys. So yeah, for as much as we can and, and boy, we sure don't have all the answers or have it all figured out, but that's the direction that we're running with our business. 
Are, are you a millennial? Aren't you a millennial? I will be 43 years old this year. I don't know if you are then. Yeah, I think I'm a little past that. I, I don't think you're off by much, though. I think I, you're know, pretty I wish close. I had that in front of me now that we started talking about it as to what the exact definition of those millennials are. Because I, 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 I'm right at the tail end of it. I, 96 is the last year. So it, it's it's like 80s to 90s are millennials. So 1981 to 1996. So I'm a 1976 model. Oh, barely missed it. Yeah, which <laughs> I would have been considered Generation X. Okay, okay. No, I think that's super important uh, in terms of culture, and that's a – I like that uh, kind of report that you found because not only is culture very important to – millennials and everyone but i think that's going to push more people to to kind of consider these relationships better and consider dealing with these relationships better just to keep culture uh or that culture between people uh kind of relatively good which is good i I think that's awesome for our society as a whole and and just kind of being like just better human beings to each other honestly (laughs) well and think about it in agriculture agriculture and and the really production agriculture, when it comes down to the nuts and bolts and the work and the getting your hands dirty part, it can get pretty stressful and it can get pretty intense. And it's not uncommon for there to be a lot of, um, a lot of work experiences that don't have great culture when it comes down to that. So I think we have such a huge opportunity in agriculture to change that in our generation and, and to, put a new branch on our family tree, so to speak, and to change your family tree and change how people are treated in agriculture sometimes and, and just create something that's really been foreign to agriculture for a lot of years, in, in my opinion. And so I'm excited about the possibility of doing that and drawing new people into ag and just making ag a better place to work and have a career. Well, and, and kind of, transparency within our industry goes hand in hand with that. I mean, if we have to be start, we have to start being transparent within the industry so that we're getting more people interested to come and work and come and fill the jobs that we need to be filled. Because I mean, don't let anybody fool you. Ag is a booming business right now. And, and it's, I don't think it's going to stop. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. A hundred percent. But so, well, we just talked about coal. I like talking about that stuff, honestly. I, I'm a big fan I do of too. I, like, uh, society and culture as a whole, how much it changes and differs is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I geek out on all that stuff. And, and traveling, I, have, I do a lot of traveling. And so I spend a lot of time just listening to podcasts about that and trying to learn something and get smart about it. I've got a, uh, uh, a professor at the University of Arizona where I attend, and he teaches all the um, social and, and uh, uh, kind of economic classes within the ag college, the College of Ag. Uh, this guy is a socialist from Vermont, but the, okay. <laughs> I, I just can't help but like just get entranced when he talks about culture and society. And I, it, it's funny how like it doesn't matter what kind of political status you're on everybody's seeing culture in a different way and everybody sees the importance in a different way but it's crazy how people can get on wavelengths uh but we're kind of in this day and age where uh kind of politics are creating barriers and we can't really get the the other side of stuff right now 
So let me turn the tables and interview you for just a second. I mean, how do you see culture playing into your future? You know, as you, as you develop your career now and, and go on, I mean, how big of a role will that play into the considerations and decisions that you make? Well, I think culture is going to change rapidly within the next five to 10 years, honestly. And culture changes rapidly at all times, but I think we're going to ha- hu- see a, a huge change in our surrounding uh, culture. Um, I feel like I'm saying culture a bunch of times. I just don't know what else to call it. The way we interact with each other, I think, is a good way to put it. I, I just think that the way people network and communicate and have relationships with each other is going to be so integral to, to the future. And in my life, I just try to uh, kind of meet everybody with the best of my ability and try to be enthusiastic and positive about everything. So I'm just trying to create a culture around myself of like positivity and energy and, and, and being ready for anything, honestly. And hopefully that helps me out in the future because I, I just like talking to people and, and getting to know people and just being nice. I don't know. Is that, I don't Yeah, Well, you know, and, and that kind of almost to me swerves over into the area of branding, you know, and, and you have your own personal brand and, uh, it's a reputation type of thing. Um, and I think that's good that you're intentional about that and you're conscious and aware of that. I, I'll share with you one other story real quickly. The first or second uh, time the Angus Convention held its annual convention as a standalone event, they had a gentleman speak, and he was an older gentleman, gray-haired gentleman, and his title was, a, and I'll probably butcher this, an ag futurist an ag futurist if that's not right it's close but in other words he was an ag oracle he he was telling you things that were coming down the line what he saw the future of ag and by the way it was it was a awesome speech i mean he had everyone in that room pumped up to be in agriculture and be in the cattle business um and that's another topic but it was very very positive but one thing i took away from that and now keep in mind this guy's old enough to be my grandpa be your grandpa white-haired guy he says, uh, show of hands to this crowd of a thousand people, show of hands. How many of you just hate to see these kids walking around on their cell phones? And so, you know, two thirds of the room put their hands up. And he says, how many of these kids uh, do you guys think they should be, you know, out riding their bike or running around their friends or visiting their neighbors? And boy, every room in the hand goes up. And he says, well, guess what? When you were kids, you could do those things and you could do them safely. But who in their right mind in today's society is going to let their kids go a mile down the road by themselves, unintended? And he goes, this this is the kid's point was interaction on social media, interaction, whether they're test, texting or calling or whatever. That's the same thing that we all did when we were kids. We just did it on our bicycles. Now they do it on their phones. And he says, our kids today really aren't that different than what you and I were when we were younger. And that was just a light bulb moment for me. And to your point about how society is going to change and how we're going to interact and network with people, well, I think so much of that's going to revolve around these phones and smart devices and social media. But from a business standpoint, too, I think the more that we can get on board with that and accept it and not criticize it, it's not going anywhere. It's we're not going to turn that ship around. I mean, it's going that direction. So you might as well get on board with it. I think that's going to be a huge part of our culture, but it can be very healthy if we be 
if we can make ourselves part of a healthy solution for those things. I think you're exactly right. Or the guy that you're kind of uh, quoting from is exactly right. Um, and I, I kind of grew up half and half. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I rode my bike and hung out with friends until I was about 12 and got my first phone. And then uh, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but that's that's pretty interesting. And I think uh, internet and, and the way that we converse over social media and even, I mean, there's three podcasts now uh, within the ag industry. There's Shoot Side and, uh, and Stock Talk and now uh, my podcast. So, I mean, you can see now and everyone can see that we are adopting this technology and these kind of platforms. And I think it's only up from here. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Yeah. And it's all good stuff, I think. And I really want to encourage you to keep working hard at what you're doing, because um, I'm very, very envious of what you're doing. I admire what you're doing. I think you're on the right track with it. Um, It's very impressive. And I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of good out of it. I think you need to start one. I'd love to. Yeah, I, I need to learn a little more about the technical side of it, of producing it. But yeah, I, I enjoy these types of things. You give me a call. I'll, I'll teach you how to do it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take you up on it. All well, right, you got a deal. Uh, about that ag futurist really quick. How much time do you have, actually? Let me ask you that really quick. Yeah, go ahead. Whatever you need. Okay. <laughs> about that ag futurist, can you give us any uh, little tidbits that he was saying that really like fired you up about anything? So a big part of his of his address just had to do with population growth. And, you know, we're not making any more land. The trend is that um, there's not more people getting into ag so that those of us in ag are in a position to get more and more and more and more market share of a world that is in greater increasing all the time uh, demand for food. Um I wish I could recall the statistics, but they're, they were eye-opening and jaw-dropping as to what our world population and world demand for food is right now compared to what it'll be 10 years and 20 da- years down the road, certainly in you and I's lifetime, not something 100 years from now, within our lifetime. And so it's pretty easy to get any of us, if, if you listen to the news or, or watch TV, it's easy to get a little bit discouraged in the short term, you know, we see a stock market go down 300 points uh, just this week. Well, the next day it goes up 200 points, you know, and, and then it, it's, it's a little bit of a roller coaster in the short term. But if you can stand back and get some good perspective about where we are, the, the factors and the variables that are in the economy right now and where we're going, I think ag's got a great future. I think it's got a great future. And we're going to see a ton of changes. We see this meatless protein and some things like that, that can be scary right now, but you know, it, it's all going to be good and we're always going to have a place in the world. Um, we're not going to go the way of the horse and, and buggy. Um, there's always going to be a need for what we do. There's always going to be, I've always said this to people, people are always going to have to eat and they're always going to have to have protection. So military farmers, we're safe yeah, <laughs> as far that's as a good way to put it. Yep. We're, those are two things that aren't going to change. It's like death and taxes. So yeah. I'm very, very happy to be in agriculture. That's a good way to put it, honestly. And I know, uh, you put it, you put it perfect. Some people are getting a little scared in the industry right now with all this. Uh, I mean, what I wish I could remember the name of, of the, uh, the meat company. I can't remember it, but 
uh, stock prices are oh, it's called Beyond Meat. Uh, mm-hmm. Beyond Meat is rising in its stock price right now, and it is going through the roof. I work at a local. I work at a uh, a grocery store as a butcher right now. Um, okay, cool. A, a local Arizona uh, grocery store, and we just start getting. We just started getting their burgers in, and we put them on our shelves right next to the regular. Yeah. Uh, hamburgers and everything like that. So it's gonna it's gonna be a part of the industry, and and whether we like it or not, because there's always <clears throat> just as we are set in our ways, there's gonna be other people that are set in their ways, and and some of those people are gonna be vegetarians and vegans, and we can't hate somebody just because they don't eat what we eat. <laughs> no, it, it's like if we were a Ford Motor Company and we were mad because someone wanted a Chevy. Yeah. You know, we got to figure out how to be the best Ford. And I think like in the beef business, for example, I, I think we got an opportunity to promote ourselves as the real thing. You know, I, it, we're the real deal. We're not the fake meat. Um, somebody's going to come up with a more clever way to spin that and package it than than what I said there. But, you know, there's a huge, huge demand. You see this in, in your business, uh, in the grocery stores. People want to know a lot about their food, right? Yep, yep exactly. It, and natural and wholesome and farm grown and all those things, you know, I think we've got a better, better corner on that than do some of these plant based products. So, you know, it's a fad and it's exciting right now. And, and the, you're right. The stock tr- price has tripled. You've seen some of the big major meat companies invest in some of these companies, oh, yeah. these plantless, you know, and then they're making it a part of their business now, but we're not going anywhere. And, and I'm not at all worried that we are. Well, I kind of, this brings us into a, a kind of a, another sector of the conversation that I wanted to talk about. And whenever you need to go, you let me know, cause I don't want to keep you for too long. Um, but I okay. wanted to talk about kind of the future of the cattle industry. You're right in it. What technologies are coming up? What are you excited about? Genomics is the big push right now in uh, purebred beef cattle and in, in about any breed. If um, if they don't have it, they're rapidly running that way. And in our breed in particular, in the Angus breed, there's an ever-growing and expanded set of EPDs that go along with these cattle now in addition to the genomics. If you're not familiar, the way the Angus Association incorporates genomics into our database is through an EPD. So we turn in a DNA sample on an animal. Uh, We get back two pieces of information from that sample. We get a percentile ranking as to where that particular animal ranks in the breed for each particular trait that's tested. And then that raw information is put into an EPD along with all the other information we have in our Angus database, and it's condensed down to a single EPD, like you're used to seeing on a pedigree, birth weight, weaning weight, but it's referred to as genomically enhanced once that DNA information has been fed into it. So I am a believer, and the the next words I'm going to say will sound skeptical, but I'll be totally truthful about it. I think we are so early right now into what we know about genomics. I think that we have a good starting place. I think we need to continue to do research and continue to work. But I think the things that we know right now about genomics are only a fraction of what we're going to know, hopefully within my lifetime, but if not beyond that. And I think the day will come where 
genomic predictors will be highly, highly accurate. In our experience, uh, in our operation here at Krebs Ranch, we see trends where genomics gets it right. We also see trends where it doesn't quite match up yet. So there's work to be done. Uh, we want to be part of making it better. Um, every bull that we sell is genomically tested. Um, I think the day will come where that will become a big tool in your breeding selection, your breeding decisions, your buying decisions, your marketing decisions. But right now, I think it's still at a point, at least for us, where it's a tool in the toolbox among many other tools. And um, like we've seen, Monty Souls told me something. Monty Souls, formerly of Star Lake Herefords and now president of the uh, American Shorthorn Association, he and I were talking and he said, you know, Jake, every generation of cattle breeders has made a great mistake in their life. He said in his generation, he thinks the mistake was overdoing frame size. He said, we made cattle way too big. He said, your generation will make a mistake. Every generation has made a mistake. And you can see this in the Angus breed historically. We can create an arms race over some of these numbers. And we've got a new EPD coming out uh, next year. And everyone's going to get really fired up. And I think we've got to be careful and we've got to be disciplined not to get single trait oriented or single tool oriented in as much as genomics is a tool. I think a balance is still the right approach. Um, I think we need to have perspective from every angle, phenotypically, genomically. We still need to take a good look at actual weights, actual performance. And that's certainly the approach we're going to be taking going, going forward uh, here at the ranch. But we're going to uh, continue to incorporate these new technologies. I think uh, you just threw a lot at me right there, and it was all good stuff. I, I, I'm going to bring up a couple of things that you were talking about because I wrote some notes down. So right at the end there, uh, you said it's you, you don't want people to single trait thing or single single tool thing things. And, and I think yeah. that that brings me back to uh, some stuff, a quote that my judging coaches would always tell me when we were judging livestock and they gave us EPDs, they would always hand us a piece of paper and they say, all right, before you look at the class, check out the EPDs. If they match up, use the paper, but good livestock is good livestock. And, it, and, it, and numbers are good, but if this one smokes it, uh, that's, that's just kind of how it is. Do, do you agree with that or, or no? Do you want to use uh, numbers a little bit more? I totally agree with that, okay. with what you said and what your coach says. And here's why. I think it's important to understand the why. Genomics, EPDs, by definition, those are still predictors. Those are still predictors. Exactly. I put more weight in actual empirical facts and evidence. So what carries more weight to me today as a breeder, whether it's cattle that we're selling or cattle that we're buying, are those actual real numbers. So it's important to me to look at the predictions genomically and on EPDs of what birth weight, weaning weight, and yearling weight will be. It's very important to our marketing especially. But the breeding side of me still puts more weight into the actual birth weight, the actual weaning weight, and the actual yearling weight. Understanding that there are environmental factors that go into those actual numbers, 
But that incorporated looking at those EPDs, I think still enables us to make the very best decisions. And we're huge ratio people. We love to look at, uh, let's say something has a 90 pound birth weight. Well, what did that ratio in a particular cow herd? And I think that gives you a better idea of where that 90 pound is in relation to the other animals and helps, um, uh, in my opinion, explain some of the environmental variation that you may see in some weights from operation to operation, from environment to environment. Yeah, definitely our environment will uh, definitely change the outcome of, of kind of the growing up and, and a growing weight of a calf, definitely. And, and especially in your neck of the woods, too, there's just such harsh environments sometimes where, I mean, you could have the perfect conditions and sometimes it's just not enough. <clears throat> but I, Th- this is a great example this year. We had so much rain early on. Our grass was weak uh, disproportionately compared to other years. And so our calves lagged behind an average weight gain the first half of the summer. Now we're seeing big compensatory gains the last half of the summer as our grass dries out and hardens up and gets more strength. It'll be interesting to see how that affects our end weaning weights and our end ratios. Right now, it looks like the calves may end up coming off heavier than ever, whereas at the beginning of the summer, they were a little behind. That's crazy. And it, it's it's just year to year. It's so interesting, and that's where the ratios help us kind of put that into a little better balance and perspective. Well, that's why predictability is so hard to do, especially in the cattle. And I mean, any production side of the industry, when you're feeding out uh, like hundred ahead of anything, predictability is just so hard to to kind of see in the future. It's it's definitely a hard thing to do. Weather is the biggest challenge that we have in agriculture, and, and it relates to what we're talking about with performance and predictability. And, yeah, it's a challenge. We There's no such thing as an average year, right? Um, so we we always are going to have a challenge from weather that's going to throw us a curveball and affect things either uh, negatively or hopefully positively, too. And But we've got to be able to play the hand we're dealt. Exactly. Now, what is this new EPD you guys are getting? So a couple of new EPDs, the, the EPD that we have at the moment that you're probably familiar with is dollar B, which mm-hmm. stands for dollar beef. And it's more of a terminal number that uh, incorporates some things in terms of feeding performance and carcass performance. They added to that a number called dollar M, which stands for dollar maternal. So now we have kind of a maternal number that uh, customers can look at and a terminal number that customers can look at. The new number that's coming out will be $C, which is a combination of both the terminal and the maternal. And in theory, we'll give um, breeders and customers kind of a quick, I guess I would describe it kind of a snapshot glimpse of what that animal looks like in terms of its EPDs without going through every single category individually. So it's just kind of an all-purpose a cumulative type of EPD that incorporates both maternal traits and the carcass traits. Now, do you think that people are going to rely too heavily on that? I think there will be some people that will get pretty wrapped up in it from a marketing standpoint and will there will be a race to make cattle that have the highest number or the, or the highest ranking animals in that category. And you know what? that's okay. That That's okay. I don't want to sound critical of that because people can make money doing that. And if that's the way that you can make money in your operation, 
uh, I'm not here to judge that. You won't see us do that at Krebs Ranch. Um, we want to keep our numbers um, at the front of the breed, but we also want to keep our cattle visually and in terms of actual performance at the front of the breed. And it's our experience that if you try to be the most of any one thing, you tend to fall behind in some other areas. And we want to stay strong and, and have cattle that are uh, that excel in phenotype, performance, and on paper. And that balance typically means that we're not going to end up being the top 10 animal for any one trait, and nor, nor would we want to be. But we want to have cattle that excel across the board and will work in a multitude of environments and in a lot of different segments for our customers. Yeah, and I think it's it's uh, very good to be well-rounded in all those aspects and not definitely not single-train anything. Uh, you, you said dollar beef, and it just took me back to uh, uh, my livestock judging day, days. And, and I always knew if I walked up to a feedlot steer class and they gave me EPDs, the dollar beef was usually going to place the class. And I loved the dollar beef section <laughs> because usually you could read the EPDs, check out the dollar beef, turn around, and they'll match up just right for you. And it was always a blessing for me. Yeah, yeah. No, from a feedlot standpoint, you betcha. Oh, yeah. You bet, absolutely. And that's what it's meant to do. Uh, well, I wanted to talk uh, really quick about the genomics uh, that you were talking about. And, and you were saying that uh, uh, you don't you hope to see an increase in, in the knowledge of genes within cattle uh, within your lifetime. And I think that that is not even a something that you need to worry about because I mean, they're already, they're modifying genes on humans right now. So to, to think that they'll uh, kind of figure out the cattle genes within the next 15 years to 20 years, I don't think that's, uh, that's pretty uh, far fetched at all. Yeah, that's going to be an exciting time too. And here's where, you know, you and I talked about principles and application when we, when we were talking about education in college, here's where that will be real applicable in an operation like ours. Every year we will go out and buy, let's say 10 new herd sires just to throw out a number, but that's not far off. We'll spend several hundred thousand dollars investing in those new genetics. And we'll do that every year. I look forward to the day where we take more and more guesswork out of that, out of those purchases. Here's what I mean by that. Right now, if we buy 10, not all 10 are going to be home runs. We're probably going to have five of those bulls that do a really, really good job. Maybe one or two are going to be exceptional. Then we're going to have two or three that mediocre and, and two or three that just didn't cut it. And to the extent that we can learn more about these cattle, be it through genomics and other new technologies that are sure to come along, to the extent that we can know more about that, that'll give us the ability to eliminate risk. And when we can eliminate risk, we can eliminate mistakes. And when we eliminate mistakes, we save money. Yeah. And by saving money, we'll make more money. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I'm excited about that, and I look forward to that. Yeah, when the risk is taken out, your profit margins increase quite a bit, I bet. Yeah, in any business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, uh, this was kind of, that's all I wanted to talk about. I, I wanted to give you uh, another uh, chance to kind of uh, plug Kreb Ran Krebs Ranch and, and tell us kind of what your position in there and what you guys are doing right now. Okay, so right now, um, my wife, Cammie, and, and I are part of uh, the family ranch, Krebs Ranch, started by her mom and dad, Eldon and Louisa Krebs. 
Her brother, Ty, also works in the operation along with his family. Uh, we run uh, registered Angus cattle. We're a 100% registered operation. We also have a herd of Sim Angus cross cows and a handful of Hereford cattle now. Um, we've changed our focus slightly in the past year. We were running about 1,100 registered cows, and last fall we had a large uh, female sale where we sold uh, the bulk of our cow herd. Now we're running about 300 registered cows with a lot of those cows serving as donors. So here's what you'll see in the next five to 10 years out of Krebs Ranch. Every year we market 400 bulls annually to purebred and commercial producers. That won't change. What will change is that compared to the past, those 400 bulls were born from a registered cow herd of 1,100 cows. Now looking forward, those 400 bulls will be born from a core nucleus of elite donor cows. So our goal is to make these things as good as they can possibly be in person and on paper. We want as much quality in our cow herd and in the bulls that we're selling as we can possibly get. So we're going to do that through a dramatic increase in the use of embryo transfer. We've put together a recip herd now that's 600 heads strong. So you won't see the numbers of our sale change, but you'll see more and more half, three-quarter, and full brothers that we'll offer. And now they'll exclusively come from those top 5 and 10% cow families that we've been able to breed and acquire and identify over 40 years of business here at the ranch. And, and again, I'm, I hope you can hear that in my voice, how excited I am oh, about yeah. that. From a, from a personal standpoint, but more importantly, from the standpoint of our customers. When people come to Krebs Ranch, and I, I don't at all want this to sound arrogant, people don't come here looking for a 2000 or $2,500 bull. They come here looking for something special, something better than they can find somewhere else. They want something that they can tame, take home. It'll be a game changer in their program in terms of genetics that we're offering. So we think that we've been meeting the, the, the standard people have, meeting the goal people have for us, but we can't be complacent about that. And we've got to continue to meet that standard for people. And so this is our way of making a huge investment in the future and stepping up our game so that in turn, our customers can continue to make their cattle and their genetics better and better and better for the years and, and the generations to come. It's been pretty incredible what embryo uh, transfer and embryo transplant has done for uh, a bunch of industries. I mean, I know the uh, the cattle industry definitely, sheep and goat industry. How is that? I mean, I mean, you were just saying that it's kind of it's. I mean, you just had eleven hundred cows and you sold them down to three hundred. That it, I mean, embryo transplant changed your guys' firm significantly. It did. It really, really did. And, you know, it's not something that we just pulled the ripcord on. We've been building towards this for several years. We've been increasing those, uh, the number of recips that were on the ranch. We've been increasing the number of donors that were flushing, increasing the amount of frozen embryos in our inventory and testing the water again, kind of growing into this incrementally. And once we saw that we were getting some momentum and some traction on this, we decided to go 100% whole hog this direction. And um, this will be our first year coming up in 2020 where the majority of our bull sale will be, in fact, from those 
uh, embryo recipient donors, uh, recipient cows and, and from our, our embryo donors. And I just am so excited to get my hands on that catalog to start making it and to start putting together our sale for 2020 because it's going to be like nothing we've ever been able to offer before. Well, that sounds absolutely incredible. And I can definitely hear the passion in your voice and, and gosh, dang, I mean, talk about quality over quantity that you guys are going to have just 300 elite females producing all your uh, bulls for the sale. That's, that's going to be pretty awesome. Well, it all comes down to how well we can serve our customers. and, And we do think that this is the very best way that we can serve our customers and continue to make a better and better product for them all the time. So that in turn, uh, for their customers, they can make a better product all the time. And that's the direction the business is going, in our opinion, uh, to to more quality, especially the upper end of the business. Um, If you want to look into crystal ball a little bit as to maybe what we think is coming down the road, um, we think there's going to be a widening gap between what we consider commodity cattle versus quality cattle there's always going to be a place for you know just that cell barn type of cow and a cell barn type of calf and there will be a margin in that and if that's the way you can make money in the business i'm not being critical of that at all but for people who want to chase premiums who want to make a premium product who want an elite commercial cow herd who want to make as much margin as they can I think the gap between those commodity cattle and those quality cattle will widen. I think you're going to see larger premiums paid for the good ones. I think you're going to see more demand for the good ones. And that's the end of the business that we enjoy. And that's the end of the business that we're going to be involved in. And that's the end of the business. We want to do everything in our power to make better and better and better. Well, and I bet that's the cream of the crop for you being in charge of marketing and promoting uh, this deal. I bet you are just ecstatic to to get out there and start talking to people about this. And I bet you already have. I mean, you're talking to me about it right now. So, I mean, this has been in your mind for a while, I bet. You know, although the means of production are changing, our philosophy isn't changing. And we've been so quality conscious and quality focused really for the 40 years now that we've been breeding cattle. That has been Eldon's passion. Of course, Eldon, the founder of the ranch, the owner of the ranch, he's the most quality-oriented, quality-conscious person I've ever had the opportunity to work for and work with in the cattle business, hands down. And so it's exciting that that's such a big part of our DNA and our culture here at the ranch. And um, for him to be willing and to really have the foresight and the vision for the next generation to make that kind of an investment and commitment so that we can continue that culture in the future. That's exciting to me. And I'm so lucky to get to be a part of that, you know, and I I think that's something pretty cool for, for any of your listeners, especially your young, your young listeners. You know, it's not about the paycheck. If you can get involved in a program or in a career and a job where your interests line up as well as what uh, I've been lucky enough to experience here, that's when it does get fun and worthwhile and exciting. And uh, you bet I'm excited about it. And that just takes us right around back to culture. <laughs> it's, it's culture. Yep, yeah. that's the word of the day, word of the interview. Well, uh, Jake, that's all I got for you, man, unless you have anything else. No, no, I really, really appreciate it. And this doesn't have to be part of the interview, but something I want to let you know about, and it might be something that could even be a future podcast for you. 
um, through this cattle camp that I'm involved with, we teach and preach a lot of showmanship. And we have always had a belief that showmanship gets a lot of lip service, but you never have really seen anybody put any money behind it or make a big deal out of it. So on October 11th, 12th, and 13th in Shawnee, Oklahoma, we're going to have an all showmanship jackpot show. And it'll be for cattle only this first year. But we're going to have 5-H divisions. It'll have $10,000 added money plus another twenty, approximately $20,000 in entry fees. So kids, it's open to the world. Kids from around the country can come to this and can compete for potentially $30,000 in cash payout plus some prizes. Oh, my gosh. You said and we're, you were saying don't put this in the podcast? Come on. Well, you, you, you can if you want, but it may be something that we can do standalone, standalone too, if you need that. But yeah, we're going to, we're going to see if that works. It's kind of a new concept. Uh, we're going to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and give showmanship the credential. That's not the word, but the credit that it deserves and that a lot of people have been talking about, but we're, we're actually going to do it this time and see what the response is, see if uh, anybody thinks it's as important as we do. I think that's absolutely incredible, honestly. And I'm, I'm honestly taken back by, by that, the fact that you guys are going to put on that show, and, and I can't believe no one has done it yet because I think showmanship is the most important part of showing livestock. That's, that's the part that really develops a kid is showmanship and not, not taking your animal out there and seeing how good your animal is, but you going out there and proving – to the judge and everyone in the audience in the stands that you did your work for the past um, year and a half with cattle, I guess, or, or just six months with hogs or um, it, I think that's it. Absolutely incredible. And yeah, I'm a huge proponent for showmanship. I help with uh, livestock camps, uh, showmanship, livestock camps all over the country. Next level livestock camps uh, is one of my favorite things to do. And that's just hogs and goats right now, but Wow, that that's awesome. I couldn't say it any better, and, and maybe someday we can work together with your background in the hogs and the goats and the sheep and, and our experience with the cattle. I, I think it could grow to all different segments. I think that'd be an awesome uh, idea. Give us the dates one more time. So it'll be October 11th, 12th, and 13th, and it's going to be in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And um, I'll, I'll stay in touch with you. We're going to have a website up where uh, – you can go and, and download an entry form. There'll be some Facebook stuff going up soon on it, so we can stay in touch on that. Yeah, I want to get you on again uh, kind of before that show, and we can just do a standalone uh, episode. Just let's talk about that. I'd love to do that. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Let's do that. All right, Jake, I really appreciate it, man. Hey, thanks. I'm glad we got to do this again. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right, bye-bye. And time's limited, so you must listen carefully. Well, guys, I, I really hope you enjoyed that episode, and, and Jake is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the cattle industry, and, and for purebred operations, he's one to talk to, and if you guys uh, if you guys want to talk to him or, or shoot him a message over Facebook after this episode, I'm sure he wouldn't really mind, honestly. I mean, you can hear the passion in his voice about his operation and, and about the stuff that he's doing within the industry. That showmanship show, that is going to be... Uh, a game changer in the industry, I think. And he said upwards of $30,000 in prizes and prize money. That is a game changer. Uh, and it's going to revolutionize. I think the way that we show livestock, 
hopefully, but I think that's that's absolutely incredible. And if you don't think so, then uh, you've got your mind on, on the wrong things in this industry. But thanks, guys, again for listening. I want to give a huge shout out to uh, to Jake over there at Krebs for for taking the time out of his day to to sit down and talk with me about this stuff. And then just a shout out to you guys. You guys are great and. I've been having a lot of followers on Instagram and and people telling me that they like the show. If you like it, subscribe. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. uh, And then leave a rating or or leave a little comment on there, uh, what you think about it. It it can be uh, constructive. It it can be anything you want. You can tell me that you like it a lot. It doesn't matter to me. I want to hear your guys' input. And and if you feel the need to message me on any of my social medias, uh, even my personal ones, I, I really wouldn't mind. So... All right, that's enough. All right, love you guys. Bye.